When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. It is Friday, March 5th, and I definitely know that it's 2021. (laughs) I was wondering if we were going to time travel this week. I have to say, I enjoyed how much other people enjoyed the flub and your (laughs) subsequent needling me of it. Our staff enjoyed it. People on Twitter enjoyed, well, actually, people on Twitter enjoyed me talking about the olden times of being human Google. Got some nice emails about last week's show as a, as a favorite. Remember we had someone ask which episodes to, oh, to... Yeah. I guess that one, in terms of pleasure, was probably a top 10. Is it representative? I don't know. I didn't love that my flub was the funniest thing I've ever done, because I didn't. <laughs> that's not what I'm trying to do here. I don't know that it's the funniest thing okay, you've ever well, done. Thank you very much. I'm not it fishing was, for compliments, but I'm glad to reel one in. Yeah, you know, it it, it was funny and I, it was very unexpected. Mm. And maybe that's what it is. Like usually um, the Jeff humor, I can kind of guess like it, it, there's going to we're going to have a pun. There's yes. going to be some puns right. here, yeah. but just time traveling us back. And then you committed to the bit and we stayed in 2018 <laughs> for a while. And I think that's really what made it magical. I do commit to bits. That's true of me. I'm very loyal to, to the mm-hmm. bit show title. Um, also, I realized, too, that I don't usually mess up the date after doing 400 and some odd. It's un- some odd of these. I don't I think that might be the first time I flubbed the actual year. Uh, before yeah. I don't remember it happening before, which is weird because I mess stuff up all the time. Anyway, there's that. Uh, I have some more listener feedback, but let's take our sure. first sponsor break before we get there. As I said, a lot of people wrote in saying they enjoyed the episode and laughing at, with, around, in my general <laughs> area. Um, again, this is one of those situations where you, it's, uh, what it's, I'm not even sure what it's called, where mo- the people who like the thing are going to say they're going to like it, but the people who don't, maybe won't about the would I like this segment or Mm. would I like this mini podcast a lot everyone who mentioned it said they would love it I'm assuming the people who are like meh don't write in so I don't know what to do with that data I'm still not too sure what to do with that myself we had some other you know staff people and contributors say that'd be interesting I'd like that I don't really know what to do with that I'm kind of interested in it did you think about this at all? I, we haven't talked about it. I did. And I did think about it. And I actually kind of had a specific use case for it because yes. I read the new Patricia Lockwood novel over oh, the weekend. Right. And I feel like that is one that would be ripe for a, should you read this mm. kind of moment? Um, should the I, should the, should the, should the show be called content warning? Trigger warning? <laughs> Probably. Because, I mean, not to, I don't know how you do this. I guess content warnings are inherently minor, minor spoilers of some, or like that something's going to happen. That one has a thing you said is a yeah. thing in it, right? It is a, it is a thing. <laughs> 
the, it's like the, I'm communicating in code during World War II, trying not to get my <laughs> thing blacked out. This piece of content contains a piece of content. The crow flies at midnight about Patricia Hawkwood's <laughs> um, new book. Well, the... Uh, synopsis for it that the publisher provides says you know this is a story of a woman who has like a super plugged in online life and gets famous on the internet until she gets a text from her mother that that says something like something is wrong how soon can you get here and then after that everything changes in her life and what's going to happen and I mean the Patricia Lockwood writing about the internet is wonderful and so sardonic and I really appreciated it the Mm. thing that happens Spoiler warning. Fast forward two minutes if you don't want to hear. Involves a very sick baby that is very sick for lots of pages of the book. And that is difficult and painful to read about in all the ways that you would imagine that's difficult and painful to read about. And I'm just a normal person who doesn't want to read about very sick babies. I haven't had personal experiences that make that extra Mm. difficult for me. And I was like, man, this is a real one to get walloped with if you don't see it coming. Um, And that's like my number one draft pick on stuff I don't want to read. You know this about me. Yeah. Like that's like, that's it. The dog Mm -hmm. can die. I'm sorry. Dogs are fine. But like, bad things cannot happen to kids. Yeah. Yeah, Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. Huh. So in that situation now, how would that affect because you, you would like to talk about that or like in someone wants to know or like how does yeah. that fit into our so, shtick that we're talking about here? In the should I read it, I think mm. in this book, for this book, if you can tolerate that okay. content, gotcha. the choice that she made there is like rich fodder for mm. conversation. I have a lot of questions about it. I'm not sure that I loved that as a narrative device but it certainly does interesting things to the character and the ways that that she captures the online life of this woman are Mm. really powerful so you should definitely read the first half of the new patricia lockwood book (laughs) (laughs) if you can tolerate the content of the second half i think there's a lot to talk about um I was complaining before I read it that some of the reviews of it are just as like obtuse and hard to pin down as Lockwood's writing is itself. And I think it's because I, it, yeah, it's, I, I noticed the same thing. Yeah. yeah, that the novel is like it's not one you're going to say was a fun read. And it's hard to say, was that good? I'm not mm. sure. But well, that's, it evoked that's a interesting. lot of things. Yeah, I think that speaks to the heart of kind of the framing of this thing that we may or may not ever actually do that we're <laughs> interested in talking about. Like, should I read it is different than is it good, right? Because yeah. should I read it is different people might have different shoulds, and you can approach books in, as we know, many different kinds of ways, and it's not a binary. Some books are good for some people and bad for But one way of framing it might be if you're going to get something out of this book if – or mm-hmm. avoid this book if sort of that could yeah. be like kind of a pro con way of mm-hmm. thinking about and framing the, the recommendation is not quite right because yeah. recommendation indicates a sort of thumbs up or thumbs down. Yeah. That's not my style, as you know. Right. Equivocation is my jam for sure. Um, <laughs> the Jeff O'Neill story. <laughs> the Jeff O'Neill story, or is it? We'll be here for another 17 hours today. <laughs> uh, it's funny stuff. Uh, let's see. Any other listener feedback to pass along? Um, I think that's it for right now. There's some stuff I might group together for a future episode as people have given us some feedback about other stuff. Uh, well, 
we had a story in books and reading this week that broke out beyond the world of mm. books and reading. Dr. Seuss's six of Dr. Seuss's books, the Seuss Enterprise, which is the <laughs> it's weird when you think about it in these terms. It is the enduring IP holder of the mm-hmm. deceased Theodore Geisel's collected works, right? Yeah. And they get to decide what to do with the books. They profit from it. And they decided that six of the books in the Seuss catalog that they've been publishing and profiting from, they no longer were comfortable or wanted to or whatever reason they decided to pull because of har- harmful stereotypes and representations. I have to admit, I didn't look at the specific things. Did you? Do you see any? No. Did you look at any specific representations? I didn't either. And I did that on purpose. One, I don't like to look at racist stuff on the whole. And B, I didn't want to get into the game of parsing exactly like which part is it and is it racist? Like, I'm totally not interested in that right now. I assume you're yeah, the same and, way. Yeah, I am. And I also was thinking about like the, you know, the entity that owns the IP, and they did. Mm-hmm. They made this decision in conjunction with the publisher has the least incentive to make a decision like this because yes. it will cost it will cost them money or very potentially will cost them money because they have fewer mm-hmm. books to sell now. And so if they're at the place of concluding this stuff is racist and bad and we don't want to be responsible for putting it in the world, like I trust that. I don't want to relitigate it. And even if they were somehow like wrong about it, I'd mm-hmm. rather like in the and, and I can't imagine that they were, I would rather catch some, you know, false positives and err yeah. on the side of, you know, protecting readers from encountering harmful content. Um, so yeah, I didn't feel the need to investigate the specifics here. So the actual specifics of the case, if it hadn't become like a big thing that like in my Facebook feed that I was looking doing my like once or twice weekly, like Facebook world, I was getting recommendations for like local coverage of this with, and, the, mm-hmm. and the stories had like thousands of likes on it. So the actual story itself, I guess you wouldn't, people listening to the show wouldn't be surprised that we're like, yeah, it's your private IP. It's racist. Pull this stuff. No one has a right to be in print. Things go out of print all the time. Like Disney pulls, you can't watch Song of the South on Disney Plus for very good and understandable mm-hmm. reasons. And so this became a thing that people got really upset about. And I think that is the more important, that's the more interesting conversation than the thing that actually happened to me. Yeah. And I think it's that it was misrepresented intentionally to make people very upset about it. Oh, you think so? Well, I think that if, I think if the headlines had been, you know, Dr. Seuss decides to unpublish six of Dr. Seuss's own books, Dr. Seuss holds self accountable, details at 10. (laughs) (laughs) Seuss cancels self. Exactly. There's no story there. Like this wasn't imposed by some outside entity. The people who own the material decided not to continue publishing it. But it's been co-opted into this story about cancel culture and we're ruining children's childhoods by taking Dr. Seuss books off the shelves. And then I I didn't look at Amazon today, but yesterday, like most of the top 10 books on Amazon were Dr. Seuss titles. They weren't these Dr. Seuss titles, which of course, some of the are still in print and are available to buy like if you're in the market for some racist children's books but there were people flooding to buy dr seuss books i guess in support of dr seuss like not wanting dr seuss to get canceled but like jokes on you because dr seuss canceled himself i I was gonna say if this is a guerrilla marketing (laughs) ploy by the seusses you know i don't what I don't. I don't understand what like people Fox think News is happening. Is, 
yeah, Fox News is just all over it. And I, I think conservative pundits have run with this and twisted it into like the big bad, like woke media, woke culture, cancel culture is right. taking your Dr. Seuss from you. Aren't you mad? What about the children? Yeah. And the it's just such a blatant misreading of the right. very simple facts of the case. Like yeah. Dr. Seuss cancels self. The freedom of speech case being made is <laughs> you have to keep saying racist stuff, right. even if you don't want to. That's a weird look. How is that a freedom of speech question? It's weird. It's so yeah. weird. And I think, and, you know, I, oh, I'd love to see more of this. Like, I was thinking about the Streisand effect with this. And if mm. you took, say, s- some popular classics that have racist representations in them, maybe the publishers of those books or the folks who hold those trusts should decide to stop publishing them. And then people will rush to buy those books, <laughs> rush look, to buy listen, their listen, books the anyway. Third, the third <laughs> book in the Smiley Trilogy by John Le Carre, which is set in Asia... Let's just say we'd like to walk that one back if we could. Mm-hmm. Some representation stuff there. If they pulled that, the sales of Tinker Taylor and Smiley's people would go through the roof. It would. It's kind of a yeah, similar like, situation. I I don't think this was cancel yourself as a PR no, move or as no, a sales no, move, no. but it worked that way. And it worked. For, like it's just one more thing on the pile of most of the stories around like your limiting speech or think about the children because they need access to racist books or whatever are grounded in either fundamental misunderstandings or fundamental Mm -hmm. misrepresentations of the facts like folks who are thinking critically are not engaged in this discourse no and listen i don't again i know a little bit about dr seuss as a as a writer like he's hugely influential in making sort of pop children's primer books a thing, right? I think I've told this story before. It's an annotated mm-hmm. what I considered doing about how Dr. Seuss became the de facto children's series around, you know, I think it was an article in Time or Life about the benefits of kids reading and getting kids to read early. And the thing that was out there was these Seuss books that had basically no uptake that was available um, and became a phenomenon. And we've talked about this before. We've done whole podcast mm-hmm. segments pri- previously about how Oh, the Places You Go is like basic person graduation gifting yep. stuff. And the phenomenon where it is the best-selling book in America every year through like May 29th or something as it's given. Mm-hmm. like, And it has been that way for 60 years, a... Really, we should we really should rename like the milk cow metaphor the Dr. Seuss of something because it has provided more ongoing um, IP revenue than probably pick your world building maybe Harry Potter I know welcome to opening another can of worms <laughs> but maybe that but that's only been around twenty years like we're talking sixty years mm-hmm. of Seussian. Um, royalties being generated. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised that the misrepresentations and the simplifications of what was happening touched a nerve. Because that is the nerve, maybe. It might be mm-hmm. the nerve in contemporary like a, adults' nostalgia for children's books. It is Dr. Seuss. And I don't think there's anyone that's even close. Is there? Can you think of one? No. 
I don't think there's anybody even close. And we see it in adults' nostalgia for things they read as yes. younger people in right. the well, maybe it's shifted in recent years, but in the like deep adherence to declaring To Kill a Mockingbird to be the best, uh, most important work right. of American fiction. You know, like for the first five years of Book Riot's life, at least, we could not conduct a reader survey about your favorite book without the answer. We stopped doing it. It wasn't interesting. Being To Kill a Mockingbird. It was just so boringly yeah. predictable. And like, okay, you had an experience. Also, you had that experience in a particular historical context. Mm. And aren't we trying, all, aren't we all trying, hopefully we're not, but I wish we were, to grow and evolve. Like, I say this all the time on this podcast, but I, I want the things that I loved 30 years ago to be outdated now. Yeah, I want right. to live in a culture that has evolved. And I think this is a great sign. I would love to see publishers do more of this because also more taking old, especially old beloved things where like we've turned off our critical thinking about the thing. It's just so beloved that we keep loving it. Take take the ones that aren't relevant off the shelves and open up space and marketing dollars and attention like the attention economy is a limited thing. Open up space there for new works that are doing the kind of work that we want books to do yeah. today. And Geisel himself, um, again, another thing where I know less of the specifics, or I once did, and, and I've forgotten the specifics, had some real anti-Semitic stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Like there's real issues about him himself. And I haven't seen, and maybe it's out there, a wider sort of call to get rid of cat in the hat. I mean, you know, one heuristic we've thought about before on the show and a very complicated and evolving understanding of our own relationship to IP mm -hmm. and authors who have said or represent or, or publicly declared stuff that we've believed to be harmful. Being dead is a bright line we've drawn, right? <laughs> is that there's a person themselves benefiting from it literally and is the consumption or buying of a particular work trumpeting a potential position? Yeah. Now, maybe there is a close anti-Semitic reading of Cat in the Hat out there. I don't know. Maybe there is. Podcast at bookriot.com. But with Dr. Seuss, I think at this point, I'm. if you want to read Cat in the Hat, I guess that's okay. I think Dr. Seuss is overrated. Let me just say it. I'm not my thing. I've never liked it. Too simple. I don't like the art. These weird, like... Giacometti puppet sock people things. I don't get the whole aesthetic. I've never liked it. So whatever, go, go forth and read green eggs and ham. Um, but I think it is interesting to see even a self reckoning among mm -hmm. some circles is beyond the pale is beyond yeah. the pale of what, of what can be broached in thinking about revisiting, rem amending, what gets put out into the world? I, I guess I, I couldn't shouldn't be surprised by this stuff. But I still I'm still surprised it got this kind of like thing that the Seuss Enterprise is like. You know what? There's some stuff in the catalog. Also, none of these people liking these posts on Facebook could name any of these six books mm -hmm. that got pulled. I, well, I didn't. I, there's maybe one that I'd heard of, but if you asked me to organically generate it, it'd be like number fifteen on the Doctor. Yeah, Seuss books, these are not the popular titles that we think of when someone's right. like, "Hey, name a Doctor Seuss children's book," yeah. and. Yeah, you're, I just think it's so telling that the facts of this are being presented or misrepresented, really, in, in the way that they are, where all that's happened here is that an entity that makes a thing has decided that that thing is harmful, right. so they're not going to make it anymore. This is like, you know, your car gets recalled because a piece of it is damaging or you know could explode you want to replace the thing like yeah, recall the part self-editing should be part 
of this. And corners of our culture are so resistant to the notion that evolution of thought, I guess, is a good thing that even an entity editing its own content is a problem. And I would bet, though, that if you went back to most of those people and said, like, were you aware that this was just Dr. Seuss, like the Dr. Seuss entity deciding to unpublish itself, they would not have been aware. And that's really too bad because once we get stuck on what we think is the version of a story, even hearing new, new information that disconfirms, that doesn't alter the belief. So... I, I, I'm sad that this is probably a. I'm sad, yeah. I'm an sad uphill, that it's calcified battle. into AOC yeah, cancel Dr. Seuss or whatever right. people think is going on right. on Instagram or TikTok, <laughs> even worse, even more inscrutable um, to it. Oh my God, TikTok cancels Dr. Seuss. It's like a very 2021 fake yeah. headline. I'm not even sure what I'm saying at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, so the frustration with it, I think, is is about the story rather than the thing that actually happened. I guess I find my attention even more drawn to the more nebular questions. I've got an email from a librarian hmm. saying um, people have now checked out all of the books that have been pulled and they assume they're never going to get them back ah. because you can now get hundreds and thousands of dollars on them for eBay from on eBay. At least you could. <laughs> Until eBay said they're not going to host listings for these six books now. You can't resell them on eBay. How do you like them apples? Well, I like the tax on people who are willing to pay thousands of book, thousands of dollars to buy a racist book no one wants. I think they're going to think it's a, they must think it's going to be a collector's item, I guess. I mean, may your efforts succeed? You can't. Why didn't you go buy Bitcoin like all the other dummies? Don't do this. Go buy Bitcoin like a regular dummy. Don't buy racist Dr. Seuss books speculatively. Too much? Too much. I just... Librarians are also wondering about school librarians to keep Mm. them on the shelves now. Pull them. Pull them. Just just pull them. But you got to fight the people who've now seen the thing on Facebook. I, it's not easy. I mean, I get that it's sucks. not easy. That does that suck. Like that does suck. The information that like the people who control Dr. Seuss's work made this decision themselves yeah. should be compelling, but that's not to say that people are acting logically right. and that it it will be. But I'm, I need, want more. Like, we need more an of ins- this. we need an in- is it censorship segment like Letterman's? Is it something or nothing? Oh my god! It's almost always it's no. Ne- <laughs> when is it? Have we ever had a real? No. Se- I mean. Oh, no, we have. We had. We We had. There was early in the Trump administration, there were stories about them, like about the administration trying to like cease publication. Oh, of of Bolton's book, right? Bolton's book, right, right. Yeah. And that was the only in our time doing this show. That was the only actual example, like government intervention or Mm. threat of punishment for speech. Yeah. And the, the the edge cases are a library system pulling a book, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Because as a government, you're not being punished for it, but it's saying that we're not going to buy copies and keep it right. in our publicly funded um, library system. eBay, I saw one, uh, uh, I'm not going to mention the name because it doesn't matter, but um, a blogger that I've been following for a long time who doesn't link to book-related stuff linked to the story about eBay pulling the Dr. Seuss stuff and says, you know, book censorship of any kind is a bad sign. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, it would be. If this were right. book censorship. If this were censorship, yeah, yeah plug your brain right. in. Get, yeah. You know, what, what mm-hmm. do you want to do with it? But I do sympathize with the librarians who, like the booksellers, 
we talked about in relation to Andy um, Andy Ngo's book, Andy mm-hmm. Go's book. I can't. I don't know how to say it last time. I'm so sorry. Podcast at bookwrite.com. Um, I sympathize where the practical ramifications of making a moral choice mm-hmm. might be out of scale with the moral yeah, benefit I mean, you're getting from it. It's interesting to think about what this would be, how this would be going down if Dr. Seuss were still alive. Like if Dr. Seuss were making the morning show rounds, if he was on the Today Show this morning going, you know what, stuff in six of my books is racist and right. I've evolved since then and take them off your shelves. Would people be wringing their hands about it? Like you're looking at the author's face and he is saying, right. I don't want this work to be available. And that should carry weight. And in the absence of that author, since he's dead, the mm-hmm. wishes of his estate or the folks who manage the IP should carry the weight there. I think that's, I mean, all of this is so justifiable, but in the like, literally the people who produce this thing no longer want to be responsible for putting it out in the world. Can, can't we just respect that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I don't know you have any like to stand on, like I'm trying to think of like a, a ca- not a counter example, but a different example where something I love got pulled because the author said, you know, I don't want that in the world. Like, you know, if Marilyn Robinson said, I don't want Gilead out in the world because of there's this passage mm. that I can't abide, I would be sad, but I'd be like, Marilyn Robinson, what are you doing? Because that's your work. I mean, eventually right. it'll come in the public domain. I've got mm-hmm. my copy. I don't know. And I'm the sure reality of publishing, and which you kind of got at earlier, is that most books yes. c- cease being published at some point. Right. And for most books, that's sooner rather than later. Most that's books don't right. stay in print for 50 years. And if you go look at lists of even like bestsellers of 50 years ago, we haven't heard the, most of those titles. Very few no. of them are still available. So like, either you're going to cancel yourself or publishing is going to cancel right. you yeah. by default at some point. Yeah, either... Um... You know, you die the you die the hero. You live long enough to uh, become out of print. Is kind of how like, it goes. Right. It's just if you if you ever do want to see the trippiness of the ephemerality of even things that we think of being more corporeal than other parts of cultures in terms of books, go look at a bestseller list from like 1946. Mm-hmm. Have fun. Have fun. <laughs> I, I mean, you know me. I like this stuff. It is those, and are I'm still like, what is all this stuff? Mm-hmm. Edna Ferber. And how many of them are racist? Probably a lot. A lot. A super big a lot. And you know what? They're out of print and no one's mad. Let's do a sponsor. Okay. I guess that was it. Um, <laughs> if, you've got, if you've got on the ground, um, you know, sort of ethical weirdness around your job in Seuss, you know, a librarian, bookseller, children's book person of some kind, I'm sure there's a, a lot of other ancillary um, cases, you know, edge cases, use cases, problems, and questions that are going to be asked over time. Also, if you've got a Seussian replacement for people that may be coming to the anti-Semitism of Theodore Geisel for the first time and looking like, mm. geez, I'd like to get these off my shelves. I do not currently have Dr. Seuss on my shelf. I will tell you for what that's worth. Um, I'd like to hear them. Um, but children's books, there's talk about a rich target, rich environment for a placement. Yeah. Good Lord. Go into a, a book. Well, when you can go into a bookstore, <laughs> you're not going to be like, where's it? If they did if it weren't for Dr. Seuss, whatever would we buy the children? <laughs> I mean, your kids are out there literally winning readathons without right. Dr. Seuss. On readathon right now. The kids are okay. It's hard to get 45 minutes of reading out of Dr. Seuss. I'll tell you that too. If you're looking to put in units of reading, it's like, oh, I just read Cat in the Hat 60 times and it's been eight minutes. Um, 
Where do we, do we talk about the Murakami? I love this story. You just put it in here. I'm not. Is this something or nothing? I guess to if it's an homage to Letterman Day. Is this something or nothing, Rebecca? Is I think it has riffing potential, but it's probably okay, nothing in the big picture. Right. <laughs> but yeah. we like well, riffing potential. So acclaimed Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami, who's known to be relatively reclusive or has the reputation of being pretty yeah. reclusive, um, is doing a t-shirt line with Uniqlo. And it's eight, right? Just unex- today in unexpected headlines. Her- Murakami's doing a t-shirt line. It's going on sale in mid-March. They feature all of his favorite things, many of which are prevalent in his novels. Cats, birds, records, men sitting yes. in bars. <laughs> And he says he tries to keep it simple. He wears, you know, jeans and a t-shirt with a sweatshirt or a sweater. And then there's this great quote, but I always wind up wearing the same thing. I'm not sure I can say why that is. He reveals somewhat unrevealingly. (laughs) Hey, he reveals somewhat unrevealingly. Remember me talking about what we talk about when we talk about running or whatever that was. I can't remember the name of the book, Murakami. This is Murakami's like koan of himself like i don't yeah, know what is going like, on with him i too am a human who wears clothing um so Fellow humans, Allison... clothing is indeed something i wear <laughs> check out my line of t-shirts featuring a cat right so allison flood wrote this piece um for the guardian about this and you know it's it's an interview with murakami as well just trying to get him to talk about himself because this is the thing about being reclusive is it makes you even more appealing as an interview target because like when is the person going to reveal some of the some of their details and i just saw this story like 10 minutes before we came on to record but it got me thinking about like what are other like novelist or writer fashion mashups that would be interesting or just like writer product lines that would be interesting. Colson like, Whitehead's um, egg sandwich cart is one I would very much <laughs> like. He's a big egg sandwich fan, and a, a New Yorker through and through. I love an egg sandwich. I would trust him to curate like, my egg sandwich experience. That was a little, I was yeah. a little ready for that one. You I, were super ready. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you know that Colson Whitehead loves egg sandwiches. Yes, yeah. um, oh, I watched the 60 Minutes segment with him. Oh, you it, did? I heard it was yeah. pretty great. It is pretty great. I mean, he's wonderful. Yeah. And it was it was great getting to... I that, may have, a, uh, I'm, you can't see me dusting off my shoulders. I may have talked to Colson Whitehead about egg, sal- egg sandwiches hey in there. at one point. Yeah. yeah, it's a good use of 13 minutes, that 60 Minute yeah. segment. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, I think like John Irving could do like wrestling singlets. <laughs> Question. Yes. John Irving's alive? John Irving's alive. Is he? I think so. I think so. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty okay. sure John Irving's alive. We're not going to do live Googling. I don't want to Google that. I don't want to Google that. It's one of those things that you like call it into being if you Google it. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Well, it reminds me, did we talk on the show about these wire cutter pieces where they're getting authors to talk about stuff? And like oh, Roxanne no, Gade had like a, a like an about, ode like her to her mixer, mixer, her KitchenAid mixer. And I think it was Zaro Kwan wrote about, I can't even remember what it was, but those are the two names I remember mm. seeing. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Murakami, I can't remember, it might be, I don't remember what, I don't remember who it was. Maybe it's Victor Hugo or Roland Barr said like something to the, the effect of like, be be normal in your demeanor and dress and habits so that you can be unconventional in thought. Mm-hmm. And that's always struck me as being particularly interesting with people like Murakami who 
are mild mannered, but if you read his books, if you read his books and you're like, he wears a t shirt and jeans every day, you'd be like, why isn't he dressing like Prince or something yeah. like that? That's what you well, would it's expect. Kind of the Steve Jobs thing, too, of like right. having that uniform. It's like all the glitters on the inside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like this game. Um, we did get, I was going to save this for a future thing, but it's, it's relevant here. We asked for politician writer pairings, oh, right? Right. A lot of let's let's pair up Barack Obama with people, and I get mm-hmm. I get it, everyone. We do it here too. Let the man rest. He's got Bruce to handle. <laughs> you know, he saved democracy twice. Whatever. Let him go do the thing. A lot of people were trying to find. I think I said the Elizabeth Warren thing about mm-hmm. like we need someone to spice up Elizabeth Warren because I think it's really interesting. But I'm like, read a book for fun by Elizabeth Warren. I'll read a policy <laughs> tract by her, but for, for fun, I don't know. A lot of people were trying to do fun matchmaking for Elizabeth Warren. I'm not sure there's any water in that well. Mm. Let's put it from what I've seen there uh, so far. Um, anyway, I, th- I, th- I think that's pretty good. I don't know enough about, I don't care, generally speaking, enough about authors' personal lives to know enough about them, Colson Whitehead's egg sandwich um, connoisseurship aside, to like match make content like this. I don't. Mm-hmm. Do you? I don't feel like, I don't care. I, I generally do not care. I don't care. Yeah. No. I don't either in that way. Like, I am not in a fandom that I could ascribe to um, where I would know a lot of stuff about the author. Like, I was thinking I've read a lot of memoirs and there are some, you know, memorable personalities. Like, I feel like a Glennon Doyle line of something would be interesting. Okay. But she could do journals or pajamas or sunglasses or like whatever. I don't know. Like, she's... But it exceeds the books, you know, like she's just a figure at this point. Or like, yeah. what am I, like Brene Brown's line of, I don't um, know. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that that's what you would go and I'm like, I can't roll my eyes hard. But I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know, know like enough, st- I don't know anything really like personal about her, but she could sell me something. I am not a, I am not a consumer of influencer culture. And I know it's a thing, and I get why. You need people, you know, it's a curation kind of a thing. You like the person. The Reese Book Club thing is no better example. There's a lot mm-hmm. of choices out in there in the world. You're trying to find a way to make a decision about what will make you happy, it will be useful, or someone that you can trust. Um, that's another thing we got feedback about the what I like it, is it good oh. segment, is like, in general, I like the idea, but I really need to know that the people, I can trust the people doing it, which, yeah, well, we're, of course, we're, makes sense. Right. We're the people doing it. So. We're the people doing it. Yeah. We're not going to get like randos off the street to come tell you about whether or not to read Wind Up Bird Chronicle or something like that. That's a different show that I would be very much be interested in. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I get it, but like, what answers about consumer goods does Marilyn Robinson have that I'm interested in? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so anyway, there. She um, could do scrunchies. She has all that hair. You know, I've got, I've got to say, on the list of things I'm in need of, scrunchie is way down there. The novelty of someone as serious as I perceive Marilyn Robinson to be promoting yeah. a line of, like, neon scrunchies would be incredibly enjoyable. Uh, okay, let's see one last sponsor spot. we got a hard pivot into, like, real actual labor news for a minute, I think is worth talking about. Um unions in books thing we've talked about before the contentious relationship between the 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 bookseller union at the strand and management at the strand continues 
a pace. Is there anything new here? I mean, we've talked about this before. Did you did you want to pick out anything that was an added wrinkle that you thought was particularly interesting? Mostly continues apace, um, worsening relations between the union booksellers at the Strand and the owner, Nancy Bass Wyden. Um, They've been tense, it says, for a number of years. Then I remember that this did happen last year where it came out that she had purchased stock in Amazon (laughs) at the beginning of the pandemic. She's married to Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon and she has to do a financial disclosure. (laughs) Right, in a super bad... Cell phone, wonderful cell phone. Yeah, truly, really bad look. Um, so looks like that's just continuing. Um, I don't know that they're making yeah. any new demands, but th- those are continuing. Presumably this will become more contentious or more of a thing as COVID gradually yeah. eases and the prospect of reopening the store in some sort of normal, quote unquote, normal capacity returns. Like right. what kinds of protections are going to be put in place for these folks? Are they getting health benefits? All those kinds of questions. So that is happening. And in the world of Amazon, um, warehouse workers in Alabama are attempting to unionize about 6,000 workers at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, um, which is a former steel town, apparently located outside of Birmingham. And they'll be voting soon on whether they want to do that. If they are successful, they would be the first of Amazon's 400,000 American workers to join a union, which would be a landmark and which President Biden has expressed support for. This is something that Amazon watchers have wondered about for mm-hmm. a long time. And I've, I've, inc- I've included myself within mm-hmm. this of they're so big and they have so many workers that eventually this was going to happen. Uh, you know, it was going to get close at for sure. And it sounds like there, I read a little bit about this. I didn't read this particular piece in the New York times podcast.com or slash listen. And you can find show notes of this in all the book, Riot podcasts. But apparently the, the steel town roots of this town in Alabama are important for this because there's, mm-hmm. there's roots, there's history, um, generational history of union friendliness because a lot mm-hmm. of people in the town had uh, ancestors or, you know, immediate family that worked for unions. So I was surprised when I first saw this, I was like, Alabama, it's not the first, I was like, not, it's not Detroit or something like that. So, but um, as, as we, as we know, this kind of politics can be hyper local. And I wonder if there is a snowball effect. Does, mm-hmm. does this, does this, if this one goes through, do a bunch more follow hard upon, or is it really a outlier situation? If you have this many warehouses, just because of numbers, a couple of them will unionize. I don't know. Will there be a tension to form a national Amazon union? AFL-CIO, like those are national mm-hmm. unions. They have local chapters. It would make sense to me that the whole thing is a union. I, it would make sense to me too. And this one has, I'm scrolling down in the piece now, particular roots tied to issues of race that um, this city in Alabama was a key battleground for civil rights struggles in the 60s. And many of the workers at the facility at the Amazon facility today are black. Um, Additionally, Mm -hmm. Alabama is now a right to work state, which makes it harder for unions to organize or to negotiate with employers. And it's made it a draw for big companies to be there. So there's real tension happening there between the power of the company and also corporations and folks who work for these giant corporations wanting to have a reckoning about workers' rights and also about racial disparities. So I I would like to see this happen. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, the 
the list of concerns that people have or complaints that people have about Amazon's practices with respect to its workers is long and many of them are well documented. So we don't need yeah. to. No, we don't no, need to no. Rehash. No one should be surprised that someone might want to unionize. Yeah. <laughs> and I would, workers I think one instance of success, there's a lot of, I think, attempt inside Amazon to discourage this from happening. Of course, corporations are worried when their workers are talking about unionizing. Mm-hmm. I think one group demonstrating that it's doable and doing it yeah. successfully opens the door for other ones. And that's that's progress, whether one more group after them does it or whether 20 more groups after them do it or whether they form a national union. Yeah. Um, a recommended read of the week in Vulture, piece by Lila Shapiro, who mm-hmm. uh, was on an episode of Annotated. She does really nice work about books at Vulture. Um, profiling kind of a group profile of called publishing's new power club of wave of hires is set to pick up where the reckoning left off about people of color especially black people um getting big jobs in publishing uh, mm-hmm. we talked about many of them before uh lisa lucas Dana kennedy and there's other there's phoebe robinson a bunch of people here i think it's a really good read they each get a little lila sets up um kind of kind of the format and the framing of it but then each person gets a couple paragraphs to talk about what they're interested in, what their issues are. I highly recommend reading this. This is a really good idea for a piece. Um, You can find the link in the show notes there. Let's do meta for the last few minutes of this show and talk about podcasting. Mm -hmm. Got the news this week that Spotify, we're done talking about books and reading. If you don't care about the podcasting landscape, you know, you, you imagine the outro music in your head. Uh, announced this week that Spotify is on pace to overtake Apple as the largest distributor of podcasts, period. No mm-hmm. qualifiers, no anything. Um, for you know, We podcast, we like to do this, we're consumers of podcasts, we like the medium, very interested in it. There was a time where if you told me someone was going to take over Apple's spot at the top of the pyramid... I would have been blown away. If I got this news five years ago, I was like, this is a radical sea change in this nascent medium. Mm. Today, I'm not feeling this way. How are you feeling about this? Were you surprised to see this? I will. I can extemporaneously explain why I don't feel this way, but I thought I would pass it to you first to tell, are you surprised? Are you interested? Are you scared of our beloved podcasting ecosystem uh, of which we've made so much mm. um, enjoyable content in? I'm not scared. I think... It's reflective of maybe a failure of imagination on Apple's part about what its competitors were going to do in that. And I'm seeing it in my personal use case. So like personal anecdata, here it comes. But isn't that all anecdata is? Is (laughs) Have we defined (laughs) anecdata? Do we get a judge's ruling? Sorry. Go ahead. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And over the last year or so, some of them have converted to being Spotify exclusives. Mm. Some of them, like the shows that are produced by The Ringer, become available on Spotify first and stay perpetually available on Spotify. And only the most recent episodes are available on other platforms. And Spotify's got a lot of great exclusive shows. So the thing that's been happening to me with podcasts is increasingly there are things that I want to listen to that are only available on Spotify. And Spotify has all the other shows that I listen to on Apple 
as well. Right. So I find myself migrating more in that direction because it's easier to do everything in one app than to have to remember which shows are in which apps and what totally. days they come out and all of that business. And I think that if Apple had recognized the power of exclusive shows much earlier and gone in for itself and produced some that either this wouldn't have happened with Spotify or it would have been a more competitive landscape. But Spotify is just blowing them out of the water with the exclusive content and it's good exclusive content. Like this is the thing we've been waiting for is not a podcast platform where you have to pay extra to get that podcast platform's exclusive content, but just we have this platform, you do things on it, you listen to music, you listen to shows, and we have exclusive stuff that makes it more appealing for you as a listener to stay in this environment than to go somewhere else. And Spotify has, I think, nailed that. Do you know off the top of your head if that new podcast featuring The Boss and um, uh, Bruce Springsteen is uh, free, even if you, uh, even if you, you don't have to have a premium account? Is that oh, if you just have an ad-supported sure. account? I think... I think it's just free. Yeah, I think it is too. I don't know for sure. We can check on that or, you know, you're out there on the internet. You can Google it for yourself. But one of the remarkable things about the the play Spotify has made, as opposed to, say, the luminaries and the mm-hmm. audibles of the world, we have to right. pay something to get into it, is since podcasts are RSS and you pull the file in and it's one of the great things that's let podcast flourish is it's not centralized. Apple became, many of you probably know this, Apple became the de facto ruler or, I don't know, benevolent dictator or sort of almost like negligent dictator to saying, yeah, we'll host it. You need to get on your phone. You can find, they're basically a directory that everyone can search for. So the Apple Podcast app became most people's default podcast player. And they're like, great, you can listen to podcasts on your phone. That's a feature of phone. You want you to buy the hardware. Spotify seemed to realize is RSS means not only can people play all the podcasts they get other places on mm-hmm. our platform because there's no barriers? We can then also sweeten the deal by having stuff you can't listen to other places. It's like if HBO said, oh, you know, I can show all Showtime on HBO as well, in addition to have HBO exclusives. Yep. And it's like kind of blows your mind a when- little bit to think about how Apple had every chance in the world not to dominate. the. They don't have to be like, I don't know. It doesn't have to be a walled garden like their app store kind of a situation is, but to consolidate the power mm-hmm. by throwing... By, they could have bought Gimlet. They could have bought The Ringer. Yep. They could have got yeah. Joe Rogan. They could have got what? The Boss and, and, um, and uh, Springsteen. I'm now referring to Barack Obama's <laughs> The Boss, for those of you paying attention. Um, but they, they didn't care enough to do it. And they seem to be caring way more. I'd love to know the ratio of dollars they spent to prop up Apple TV+. Plus. Versus mm-hmm. the dollars they spent to maintain the centrality of Apple in the podcast ecosystem. It's got to be 100 to 1. At least 100 to 1. For all mankind, that shows like $15 million an episode. It's wild stuff. Anyway, yeah. continue to be surprised. <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's just super interesting. And I've seen Spotify go acquire shows that got popular on all the other platforms and then yeah. turn them into Spotify exclusives. So it's that's kind like, of like self-publishing, getting big, big five publishing deals. Like you can go make your podcast. Kind of, it's very yeah. low. Mm-hmm. F, or, you don't need, there's no gatekeepers, right? It's hard to make a good show and to do it a long time and get noticing, maybe even harder to, to make a show that gets a following big enough for um, the Spotify or someone else to pick it up. Mm-hmm. 
But they've got all these people making content out there, all these people publishing unsolicited manuscripts of podcasts into the ether, and they can go pick the ones that win. And Spotify is being smart about how they publicize these things. Like they acquired Brene Brown's podcast, Unlocking Us. And so at the end of the past, the previous season, she says like, and we've been acquired by Spotify. So to listen to this this show in the future, to find new episodes, you have to go to Spotify. So like that's Mm -hmm. just sitting on the feed in Apple for people who are searching for a Brene Brown podcast to get bounced in that direction. There's a couple shows that I listen to that are Spotify exclusives that I learned about in Discovery on the Apple Podcasts app through trailers that are posted there and it's like did you like this okay now go over to spotify and subscribe well in the way they package them i think i don't know if you can um can you find the Brene brown podcast on apple now you can it's just the old episodes Oh, it's just the old episodes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Some and I know are only the, doing the new episodes yeah, in the back and all the content. new, Yeah, and all the new ones are Spotify exclusives. Yeah. And then the Ringer shows, at least like the rewatchables, you can listen to new ones on Apple, but only shows from the last six weeks yeah. are on Apple. So if you want to go into the backlist, you've got to go to Spotify. I guess, it, yeah, it makes sense. It depends on the evergreenness of the content. Like for our show... The the most recent shows are the most interesting because it's a news, right. you know, what's happening show. Whereas like the rewatchables, you get hooked on the first three. You want to listen to the rest of them if you like it. So then you'll yeah. bounce over to Spotify or something else like that. I, I got to shout out my favorite podcast app. We had a nice we had a nice healthy discussion internally about podcast listening habits and what people are doing. Um, part of the reason I'm not worried about this is as podcasts have grown, of course, Apple, which is a proprietary platform, can't be the central thing it was because a lot of people mm-hmm. have Android phones. Right. And Spotify is a wonderful podcast solution. It's a wonderful audio solution if you like. Some people like it all in their one uh, one place. So Apple can only really be determinative at all. Its market share is limited to people who have Apple devices, right? Whereas the world of, of smartphones and digital technology, of course, much larger than that. Um, but I got to say, if you have an iPhone, Overcast, which is my preferred podcast app, is wonderful as a single-use podcast player. I I love Spotify. And I think, I don't know if I talked to you about this, Rebecca, but I did realize in thinking about this again, that Spotify now has the belt in my household for if we could only keep one streaming thing, it would be Spotify. It's not Netflix. Mm -hmm. It's not HBO. No video junk. Spotify would be the last remaining digital cockroach. I just had this conversation with my parents mm. a couple of weeks ago because my dad was playing around with Spotify during, you know, COVID quarantine and he was asking me if I had a premium account and I went, I do, you know, and I have yep. had it for a million years and I was like, I cannot imagine giving up my Spotify account. It's it. like the best $10 I spend on it media is. in a month and it has now 10 years worth of playlists and albums and, you know, trips I've been on and like mm-hmm. all that, all that stuff. And I absolutely, it's the one I would give up. That's when I would give up last. Um, I don't know I if a, I could probably switch to Pandora or something if that was it. But like music is more important to me, you know, having a mm-hmm. comprehensive, because you could do everything. Every other streaming yeah, service, I got to pick a subset of it's, what's It's out comprehensive. There. You can listen to what you want to listen yep. to with the premium. There's no ads. Like it's, it is the experience that I want to yep. have. Um, I have a selfish request for our listeners. Yes. Let's get out on My, this. My mom wants to experience podcasts now that she has a Spotify situation happening. She gets on the treadmill at home every day and like walks for an hour and they put together a lot of puzzles my parents do while they're home. And I do not think that my preferred content is going to be good for my mom. She is in her mid sixties. She's a nice Midwestern lady. You listen to this show. You have some sense of me. Um, 
do your parents listen to podcasts? Do you listen to things that you think my mom might like? Please help me. Can I give you the RSTNLE version? Yes. Yes. This American please. Life. This American Life. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be curious. Podcast at, podcast at bookriot.com. I'm off mic, sort of thinking into the ether, trying to think of good answers. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Reminder, Claire in the Sun, my copy arrived yesterday. Very beautiful. Reviews have been, I've just watched headlines, watched, read headline <laughs> reviews. Seems positive, question mark? I don't know. Yeah. We are recording the episode about Clara and the Sun on March 25th, so it'll air on March 29th. Yeah. So you have several weeks to get caught up if you want to read along with us. Yeah, looking forward to that. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. Yeah, have a good one. Okay.